So the song we just sang was 500 years old, written by Martin Luther in the 1500s. Updated a little bit, but uh, I love it when we can sing old hymns. Probably the oldest one we sing is when we sing Be Thou My Vision. That was written in the 5th century. It's an old Celtic song um, that uh, like Druids sang and they changed the words to. And Luther's music is called bar music. And there's some debate, is that because music is measured in bars or is that because Luther frequented bars for a long time? And that, this is true. Um, and then changed the lyrics and, and turned it into a Christian song. Matter of fact, and I'm, this does not have anything to do with my sermon, but um, the organ, right? Everybody regards that today as a, a holy instrument. Back in the time of Luther in the, in the Middle Ages, the organ was a pub instrument. It was the electric guitar. And so when they started trying to bring the organ into the church, people just flipped out. So worship wars are nothing new. It used to be about the organ. Now it's about all kinds of different stuff, and thankfully we don't have that issue. But if you've got your Bible, let's go to Luke 4, because that has nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about today. We're going to be on page 558. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one right there around you, page 558. Um, you'll get a whole lot more if you'll follow along uh, in the Bible. Um, speaking of pubs, I guess, maybe it did have something to do. I'll try to segue it. Um, Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were, were guys who frequently visited, was it the Green Dragon or was that just the one in the book? All right, <clears throat> that one. And uh, anyhow, Tolkien, if you know anything about him, he, he, he's the guy who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it's been up, or a movie was made about it by Peter Jackson several years ago. And in the second movie, um, it's called the, 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 the Two Towers, Towards the end of it, there's a huge battle, um, this, at the Battle of Helm's Deep. And at this battle, as it's getting ready to take forth, the, the two forces of good and evil are opposing one another. And an old man, he, he pulls back his bow and he, and he, and he loses you know, hold of it and it goes and it fires. And the battle begins after he lets go of that arrow. And, and the king of, of Rohan says, and so it begins. That's a battle. And so it begins. And when we come to Luke chapter 4, that's kind of what we find happening. It's kind of that moment of, and so it begins. Like the first three chapters of, uh, of the book of Luke, we, we find the angels heralding the, the news of Jesus' birth, and it's celebrated by shepherds. He's born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth. He's dedicated in Jerusalem. He's baptized in the Jordan. Just these three chapters showing who Jesus is, showing what Jesus came to do. Then chapter 3, you get this long genealogy of who Jesus is, showing that he is the Son of God and he is the Son of Man. You get to chapter 4, and so it begins. You get to chapter 4, and now it's go time for all that he came to do. Now it's time to fulfill what he came to do in conquering sin and death. And so Jesus walks you know, up to the gates of hell and says, bring me. And so it begins. What he came to do. 30 years of preparation. Now three years of ministry begins heading to the cross. And so it begins. And it begins with a far more epic battle than Helm's Deep. It begins with a battle in the wilderness between Jesus and the devil himself. A battle in the wilderness 
against the devil himself where Jesus is fighting not, this is crucial, not in the power of his divinity, but is fighting in the weakness of his humanity. See, sometimes we concentrate so hard on the deity of Jesus and we think, therefore, that it was easy for Jesus to resist temptation. I mean, he's God after all, right? It's easy for him to resist temptation. No big deal. But Jesus was fully man as well. Not partially. Completely. Fully man. Not the heresy of a man's body with the mind of Christ. Not some docetism here where Christ only seemed to be a man. But instead, it's Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In Hebrews 4 as well, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but the first thing I want to talk about are just the temptations of Christ that we see in the wilderness right there in Luke chapter 4. This battle that's going to take place. And the way it rolls out is that after enduring Satan's temptations for 40 days in the wilderness, not just at the end, it's all throughout. It's a present participle. These things are going all throughout. After enduring temptations for 40 days, when Jesus is physically, emotionally, and spiritually as weak as he can be in his humanity, he's been fasting for 40 days, Satan at that point throws three of his most powerful and probably most popular for him Temptations at Jesus. Temptations that he still uses today on us. And they're nuanced. They're very, very sneaky. They're not, you know, up front, right in your face. They're, they come around, they, 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 they flank us. They're like IEDs that we don't see. And then we, our minds, and we step on them, we explode, and we are never able to see them because the, the, the devil's pulled the wool over our eyes and we, and we don't see them coming. And so my prayer this morning is that through the word, the Holy Spirit would do His work and open our eyes so we might see these schemes of the devil and learn how, like since Christ has overcome them, we can as well. He did it in His humanity. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. So let's just read it. Luke chapter 4, page 558. Let's read this. And let's do this today. Since you already normally read it ahead of time and you're already standing up because we like to stand when we read the Word. So if you'll stand in the honor of reading of God's Word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, 
and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You guys be seated. All right, what's going on here? These are real, authentic temptations. This is not some simulation deal. These are authentic temptations that Jesus faced, and that we face today. Okay, three of Satan's favorites. And so temptation, common temptation number one, if you're taking notes, a a grenade that Satan lobs at us is this. We are often tempted to an underconfidence in God. Okay, we are often tempted to an underconfidence in God. Look at verse 3 again. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And so Jesus is literally starving. Like I looked this up. I was like, 40 days of fasting? Is that even possible? Can you survive that long? So I started looking into like Survivor Man and all these folks who do these sorts of things. And often, after about 20 days, you die. But there are instances and cases where people have hydrated enough that they've actually not passed away until like 50 and 60 days. And so Jesus, I mean, he is at the point of death. He is starving to death. He is weakened. And in that moment, Satan attacks him with these big ones and says, hey, listen, if you are the son of God, I know you're hungry right there. Stone. All you got to do is say bread and it'll be bread. That's all you've got to do. And so Satan's coming to him saying, If you're the son of God, why are you living like this if you're the son of God? Surely a son of God wouldn't live like this. Why why are you doing it? God doesn't love you, does he? That's why. God is against you. That's why you're living like this. He won't let you have rest. He's not good. And so it's a temptation. Like he's not for you. He's not against you. It's the exact same temptation that Adam and Eve fell to. God's keeping something from you. God's holding something back from you that that would be good for you, but he's not allowing you to have it. It's a temptation to doubt God's goodness. It's a temptation to doubt God's fatherliness. It's a temptation to doubt God's love for us, to doubt that, that God is for us and not against us, to doubt that he's actually seeking to lead us into joy and not, you know, prevent us from it. It's to doubt that he's, trying to line us up with how he designed the universe to work. It's a temptation to just have a complete underconfidence in God being who God says he is. Have any of you ever faced this temptation? To doubt God's goodness in your life, to doubt God's faithfulness in your life, to doubt God's love for you based upon your circumstances. You look at your circumstances and you start basing God's love for you based upon those circumstances. This is one of the biggest struggles, one of the biggest 
temptations uh, for me when, um, when Eden was born. Like there were times when I was strong, I remembered the scriptures, I remembered the gospel, and the Lord, like in his preparation for that time, a lot of stuff I was studying, he was really preparing a pretty solid uh, theology of suffering and, and preparation for that. But still, there were those moments of time in this where it was a fight, and, and, and I would cave to this temptation and just have a complete underconfidence in God. To doubt His love for me, to doubt His goodness, to doubt His faithfulness. And the lie that would be whispered into my ear that seemed so logical, and you may have heard it yourself before, was a lie like this. If God loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Right? Maybe for you, it's, it's it, it, you know, if you loved me, God, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have cancer. If you loved me, you wouldn't have taken my spouse from me. If you loved me, God, I wouldn't be infertile. If you loved me, God, you wouldn't have taken my job away. If you loved me, God, you wouldn't have caused my finances to crash right before retirement. If you loved me, God, you wouldn't have made me wait so long for a child. You heard something like that whispered? And so then logically where that takes us then is that we start reading, well, then God doesn't love me. He doesn't. He must be against me or he is getting me back for sins I've committed. Things I've done wrong. He, now he's, he's getting me. And so this, I mean, I struggled with that. And like uh, this week, um, I can go to Vanderbilt Hospital when I'm good, unless I go to the PICU or the NICU. I have issues. If I go to, but if I go to Williamson County Hospital, I, I've got to breathe, I've got to get ready, I've got to take a deep breath and go inside because anxiety just comes up in me from, from difficulties that began, that began there. And you can think what you want about me personally, but I'm just being honest with you. I, this, I struggled with this temptation during that time pretty heavily. Sometimes we're good, but sometimes I doubted God's goodness. I doubted God's faithfulness. I doubted God's love for me, that he was for me, that he wasn't against me. And then I would come and I'd climb in this pulpit and try to preach to you. But the biggest preaching I had to do was to me. I had to preach the gospel to myself over and over and over and over and over again that God is good, that God is for me, that God is not punishing me, that He, that, that Christ on the cross, took all of my punishment, such that there's none due to me anymore. All that's left for me now is God's fatherly care for me. Jesus took my punishment. Jesus paid it all. There's none left for me to pay. And so I had to preach. I had to remind God is my Father. He is Abba, Father. And He delights in me, not because of me, but because of Christ. And His love for me is not proven based upon my circumstances. It's already been proven because Jesus went to the cross for me. That's the measure. If he wasn't for me, he wouldn't have gone to the cross for me. That's a reminder. If you ever doubt God's love for you, if you ever doubt God's for you-ness, look at the cross. 
he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you to save a wretch like you and me if you're saved? And so as I did that over and over and over, kept returning to the truth of the gospel, kept returning that God is good, God is sovereign, God loves me, right? Truth of Scripture, fighting temptation with Scripture like Jesus did here, though I wasn't thinking about it, oh, maybe that's the way I do it. Gradually, God led me to a place of repentance of my sin, of doubting him. And then he began, in his grace and through his spirit, I began winning more of those battles and losing. Though I still lost some, and I still lose some. But this is one that Satan still uses today. He wants you to doubt God's love. He wants you to doubt God's faithfulness. He wants you to doubt God's goodness and his care, and his concern. And so we are still tempted by Satan to an underconfidence in God. All right, that's one of the ways that we're tempted. Another one, the second one. So number one, we are tempted to an underconfidence in God. Number two, we are tempted to an other's confidence void of God. Okay? An other's confidence void of God. And so look at verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, first of all, let's deal with Satan's claim here that he has authority and he can give it out to who he wants. We know that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So is this a lie right here? It's a half-truth, okay? It's a a half-truth, but as I learned after a third-grade trip to the principal's office with Helena Owensby and Charlie Pratt, a half-truth is a whole lie, all right? Incidentally, I also learned that the principal's paddle did not have tacks in it. It was solid wood. But on the one hand, yes, Satan is, Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus calls him three times, John 12, John 14, John 16, the ruler of the world, of this world. But understand, this is at God's permission, not Satan's possession. God is sovereign. God is in the heavens. God, everything rolls out the way he wants. He is uh, absolutely sovereign in all ways, in all respects, and he has allowed Satan to have a temporary, derived, limited power in this world. But he does have it. And so this temptation to Jesus here is legitimate. Like, I think we get this thing backwards sometimes, especially maybe suburban Nashville. We have this idea, or we just view Satan as an ugly, like, dark red, uh, pitchfork in hand, you know, spliced tongue, got a little pointy deal on, on a tail, you know, uh, all those sort of, like, that's how we picture him. And we just really depraved, really ugly. But though fallen, and though wicked, as the father of lies, he makes himself appear mighty and splendid. Like he's not even close to all powerful, but he is way more powerful than we are. 
And the Bible says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. And so often, it's not that Satan, uh, it, it, Satan isn't an ugly evil. Very often, Satan comes across as an elegant evil. So when Jesus saw the devil in the wilderness, he wasn't looking at evil in all its squalor, but in all its sophistication. This is how sin works. It's alluring. It's attractive. It looks good. I was in Proverbs 5 on Thursday for part of my quiet time. And uh, it, it reads like this. Uh, it's specific to uh, sexual sin, to um, you know, pornography or lust or uh, adultery or fornication. But it's got application to all sin. Here's the way it reads. For the lips of a forbidden woman drips honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, enticing, alluring. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps follow the path to shale. Sin is enticing, it's attractive, it's pretty, but it's deadly. It's a Venus flytrap. It's a worm on a fish hook. You don't see the hook. You just see the worm that you want. That's the way sin works a lot of the time. But it begins, it begins with caving to finding joy and contentment and confidence and hope in Christ, and instead trying to find it in other things, void of God. And that's what Satan is tempting Jesus with here. He's saying, listen, here's the splendor of the kingdoms, and I, you can have the crown without going to the cross. We can, we can handle this right now. And so focus on the stuff, focus on the praise, focus on the acclaim, focus on the fame, just stay distracted by all of that. Have an others-focused view, you know, void, an others-confidence void of God. And in its humanity, this had to be appealing. Don't think temptations, nobody. This had to be appealing. I can, I can be like Jesus had. He deserved to be praised, did he not? He deserved to be adored. He deserved to be worshipped. And he could do it right then without a cross. And Satan had shown him in a vision all the kingdoms of the earth in a, in a moment. He's got the Roman Empire, Chinese dynasties, maybe even the United States of America today. And they were all so moral. I can understand very well that Satan is perfectly fine with you having family values and a country being focused on family values as long as that country is not focused on him. He will use family values to distract people from him all day long. And so to achieve all of this and have this praise right then, all Jesus had to do, all he had to do was for a split second bow his knee. Split second. But why not? Just this one time. 
It won't hurt anybody. Matter of fact, it might help some people. And I deserve it. God does not understand how hard this temptation, these 40 days in the wilderness, how He doesn't understand all the pressures I face. I deserve this. Anybody heard that one? That's you putting you and your pleasure and your comfort and all kinds of other things in front of God and having an other's confident void of God. See, not every attack from Satan comes as some big, great, big, wicked, evil thing. It's just to get your eyes off of Christ. Get you distracted. Get you caught up in this. Good things. He uses good things all the time. And transforms them and we make them into an idol. And they become our little de facto little God that we bend our entire lives to fit around. And we bow the knee to. Oh, and Good things. Sports. Whether you play them or you watch them. Your kids' sports. It can be your kids. Your family. Your spouse. Your desire to have a spouse. Sex or drink or pharmaceutical drugs or food or work, all these things that in their proper context and place are good, but in their wrong context are damning things. And so a lot of times what winds up happening is we just spend all our time trying to block out bad things and we lose sight of the fact that good things are usually the things that get us. Good things that become God things and therefore become bad things. As one guy put it, he said, the moment you take a good thing and you make it ultimate, you've pretty much decided that that will be the thing that destroys you. Because you've placed it on a level that it was not meant to be. You've put it on a throne, and now you bow to it. You've moved to an other's confidence, void of God. And so we're often tempted to an underconfidence in God, an other's confidence, void of God. And then thirdly, we're often tempted to a confused confidence in God. Look at verse 9. A confused confidence in God. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so basically what you've got going on right here is Satan is starting to wise up to the fact that every temptation he throws out at Jesus, Jesus strikes it down with the Word of God. He strikes it down with Scripture. And that's important. We're going to come back to that in a minute. That's what Jesus has been doing. Every time there's a temptation, boom, he strikes it down with Scripture. And so Satan's kind of catching on to that. And so Satan's like, all right, fine. You want to play that game? You know, if you're going to always talk about Scripture to me, then fine. How about this? And so cunningly, the father of lies takes Scripture, twists it, and says, throw yourself down. God will save you. See, see it, it says so right here. Psalm 91, it says so right here. So watch this. Satan just proof-texted his temptation. It says so right here. And so I imagine he was like, what's wrong, Jesus? Do you not believe God's word? says it. Do you not believe that? Why, why don't you believe God's word? Why don't you step out in faith on God's word? Don't you believe what he said? You are the Psalm 91 man, are you not? So why don't you step out in faith and show everyone that you are? Do you not believe the word of God? 
And so then Jesus takes Satan to school and teaches him a lesson on hermeneutics. That Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's a lesson that we have to hang on to as well because Satan's tactic here is that if he can't get us to an underconfidence in God and if he can't get us to an other's uh, confidence in other things, then maybe he can get us to a confused confidence to where we don't actually understand God at all and the prosperity theology and word of faith things that are out on TV are God's, are, 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 are God's enemies and are Satan's minions and evangelists in this today. I'm not saying that they are consciously worshiping the devil, but I am saying that what they are teaching is a lie from the devil. Because like Satan did here, they pluck a verse from Scripture, rip it completely out of its context, and create a complete false theology around it. But while this whole confused thing is not just a it's not it's not just a TV thing though. It's in mine and your heart as well. Because we'll get confused on what is the main thing. What is the main thing? What are we supposed to be about as a church? What are we supposed to be about as God's people? And we'll get confused and we'll drift and, and start thinking, man, we are we're out of the school. We've arrived, we've been in here two years. How many people we baptized this year? What are we doing? We get confused and think that the main thing that we're supposed to is building our programs, building our ministries, do things to make us comfortable, make it all good for us, make my life feel good and things that fit in my life. Rather than spending ourselves, having a radical focus and spending ourselves daily and doing what God's called us to do to make disciples, to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And then see them baptized and plugged into the church. And so we'll get confused about the importance of gathering corporately for the preaching of God's word. And we'll get confused about the importance of growing in groups. And we'll get confused about the importance of serving the church and the community. We'll get confused about the importance of going to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. We're tempted to this confused confidence where we reduce God to our own personal Jesus who matches my own personal wants and desires and wishes and looks a whole lot like me. But Jesus overcame all these temptations. So how did he do it? He didn't do it in the power of his divinity. He did it in the weakness of his humanity. And so he did not wield any weapons in this fight that we do not have at our disposal. He defeated the devil by being filled with the Holy Spirit and by wielding the sword of the Spirit, a.k.a. the Word of God, a.k.a. the Bible. It's in the Bible It's the Bible that teaches us not to live for pleasure, but for every word that comes from God. It's in the Bible that teaches us to worship God and not others. It's the Bible that teaches us not to put God to the test, not to twist and get goofy with Scripture. And so if you want to stand against 
the devil, we want to stand firm against him, we need to know and to do what the Scripture says. But I want to make sure we under, you understand me on something, because this is a point I think we get confused on sometimes. Scripture is not an incantation against temptation. Right? Like, the devil tempts you with something, you trot out this verse and boom, like it's some sort of potion, and now you don't have a temptation anymore. Scripture is to point you and remind you of who God is and what He's done and what He's like and what He's about. It's not an incantation against temptation. It's an invitation to be reminded that there are things better than bread, that there are things better than being affirmed by others, that there are things better than all these things that we want to make ultimate in our life. There are things better than our comfort. There are things more important than us and our Preferences and priorities. It's not an incantation against temptation. It's an invitation to know and commune with the one who can help you resist temptation. And in Hebrews 4, again, Jesus is an empathetic high priest. Which means in that moment when everything in you wants to make something else ultimate, wants to doubt God's goodness, wants to get confused or floozy over God's word, just make the universe completely about you, in that moment you have an empathetic high priest who can say, no, 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 I get it. I've been there. I've faced it. But let's not go this way, son. Let's not go this way, daughter. Come with me. Let's go this way. Okay, he's empathetic. He's not smacking you down. He's empathetic. It's called grace. I'll be quick with this, but here's, I'm about to pull a great switcheroo on you. While all of this that we've just talked about is extremely helpful in our fight against temptation and is definitely an application of this passage, it's not the main point of this text. Like when Luke wrote this section, Luke didn't say, hmm, I'm going to tell them about Jesus' temptation. I hope from that they realize this is how they can face temptation. No, 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 no. What Luke is trying to tell us when he wrote this is not, you know, show us how to resist temptation, but to show us how our Savior and King resisted temptation for us in our place. He did it. Just look back at chapter 3 real quick. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse 37 there at the end. The last, this is the long genealogy. Verse 37 ends with, with this. Actually, it's verse 38. The last, the last two sons of, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so what's happening here, what Luke is trying to hammer home through this, he says he's, the genea- gives the genealogy, says that, you know, talks about Jesus is the son of Adam, he's the son of man, and then immediately goes into a temptation by Satan in a wilderness, a.k.a. in a garden. What he's trying to get us to see, he's deliberately trying to show us that Jesus is like a new Adam. He is a second Adam. He's a true and better Adam who does pass the test in the garden and all throughout his life and whose obedience, therefore, can be ascribed to us. It can be given to us. It can be imputed to us. Many people think that the gospel is just about the death of Jesus on the cross. 
Is that important? Absolutely. Jesus died for your sins. But if Jesus just died for your sins, it doesn't do anything for you. He also had to do some other things. We just celebrated Easter. He had to rise again. So if you just, the death of Jesus, no, you've got to have the death and you've got to have the resurrection. But not only that, you don't just need the death and the resurrection. That's not all the gospel. It's also his perfect, sinless, obedient life. If he did not live sinlessly, if he did not live perfectly, you're still in your sins. He's not a blemish-free, atoning sacrifice. He's a sinner like you and me, in need of a Savior. If he didn't live sinlessly. So no resurrection, there is no forgiveness. But if there's no perfect, righteous, sinless life, we're still in our sins as well. And so when we read this account, this, this probably familiar if you've got a background in church, this account of the temptations of Jesus, we need to see the weight of what is at stake right here. If Jesus had failed, then he's just like Adam. And there is no forgiveness. Satan wins, and we are eternally separated from God. But since Jesus succeeded here and throughout his entire life, it means that there is freedom. It means that there is forgiveness. It means that there is hope. It means that there is a new start. It means that his mercies are new every day. And it means that that thought that maybe comes into your mind sometimes, another lie from Satan that comes into our lives that sometimes maybe whispers to us, you've gone too far this time, you, 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 you've blown it this time, God's given, forgiven you for all that, but you have used up His forgiveness in your life and you are beyond Him this time. You cannot be forgiven. Because Jesus won in the wilderness, it means that that too is a lie from Satan. You don't know what I did though, Joe. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter. Because it's not about you and what you do. It's about Jesus and what he did. He did defeat Satan where you didn't. He did live perfectly righteous, sinlessly where you didn't. And on the cross, he takes your sin and gives to you his perfect life, his sinless life, his righteousness. And that clothes you. And that's what makes you stand clean and holy and blameless before God. Not what you did, what He did. And when you receive Jesus, he, it's like a blanket clothes you. He drapes that over you. He takes off His robe of righteousness and wraps you in His robe of righteousness. He gives it to you. That's why I say all the time, the gospel is an exchange. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. That's what it is. That's the good news. On the cross, the father treated Jesus as if he had lived your life. So that he could treat you as if you had lived his life. You get his righteousness. He was sinless. He withstood the temptation. He passed the test in the wilderness. This true and better Adam has won. So this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus is one in his life and his death and his resurrection. And this is the good news that Jesus' ministry begins with right out of the gate, Luke chapter 4. And so it begins. 
And it begins with an immediate defeat of the devil. And he just keeps pounding him for the rest of eternity until he casts him into hell forever. Father, whether it is a temptation that we have whispered into our ear by Satan or it is just our own sinful fallen selves because our greatest enemy is not even Satan, it's ourselves. Regardless of which way that comes into our life, Lord, we are flooded and we are caused to doubt you. We look at our circumstances and the hardships in our life, Lord, that are heavy and are heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. And we're tattered and we're broken and we're beaten and we're buffeted. For those of us in the, in the room that are like that, Lord, would you comfort our hearts and would you restore our confidence and would you help us to see that though we're struck down, we're not destroyed. That you are with us. You are not absent. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You're sovereign over us. For those in this room that Lord have turned and have started to find our meaning and our purpose and our fulfillment and our confidence in other things and our validation in other things, and that's where our hope is, would you open our eyes? the reality of that word and cause us to repent and walk in fruit that is in keeping with repentance. For those of us who maybe have been confused by the twisting of Scripture and false theologies that are propagated in the culture, Lord, would you show us our error and help us to see the truth of the gospel? And Father, all of us in this room, Lord, we Lord, I praise you, God, I just praise you that you have imputed righteousness to us. Everybody in this room, Lord, we are busted up, we are broken, no one's clean, no one got off easy, no one's left untouched. And it is a helpful thought, Lord, just to think about who it was that you hung out with all throughout Scripture, prostitutes and thieves and tax collectors drunkards. You are a friend of sinners. And so we can come to you in humility and find grace and mercy in our time of need, which is daily. We ask it in Jesus' name. The saints said,